Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, in various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Lord Jesus, that day that you hung on the cross at Calvary was the day that the Lord had made, and we should rejoice and be glad in it, because Kevin was right. It is the ultimate expression of the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord that will never, ever, ever give up on us. You will not stop pursuing us until you have the fullness of our hearts. And how I praise you for that, Father. How I praise you that our hope is in your pursuit of us and not in our pursuit of you. How I praise you that our hope is in your eternal and everlasting love and not in our fickle and fading love. Oh, Father, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being steadfast. Thank you for pursuing us all the way to the end. Lord, the word for today is a a mild rebuke. It's a stinging word. And I am certain as I have prayed that some people particularly today need to hear this word. I don't know who they are, but you do. And I pray that you would administer that word just like the surgeon with his scalpel. You cut us, Lord, in order to heal us. You wound us in order to make us whole. And so I thank you for your loving rebuke, and I pray that it would have its design now. I pray that you would use it to woo us closer and nearer to the heart of the God who loves us forever and ever. And I give you my thanks and praise for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have been seeing over the last few weeks, Hebrews chapter 1 paints a very vivid and powerful picture of the glory of Jesus. It's a picture that's worth memorizing if you're into taking the time to memorize things, I would memorize Hebrews chapter 1. It's a picture that's worth meditating on as deeply as you can. It's a picture that's designed to to shape our image of who Jesus is and to help us understand just how high a place he occupies in the universe and more importantly in the kingdom of God. This chapter teaches us that Jesus is the final prophet through whom God spoke his final word that he is the sole and rightful heir of everything in creation and all of the promises of God, that he is the one through whom God the Father created everything in heaven and on earth, that he himself is the visible display of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the depths of the being of God, that Jesus himself is the one who upholds everything by the word of his power, causes it to have its being, and guides it towards its appointed end. Uh, Many of us love Romans 8.28, that God works everything together for his glory and our good. Jesus is the one who's working all things together for his glory and our good. This chapter teaches us that Jesus is the one who made a once-for-all purification for sins that was so powerful 
that it cleansed those who believe forever, not just from the penalty of their sin, but it cleansed their very conscience. This chapter teaches us that Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high where he rules and reigns and where he is so much greater than the angels of God that they actually bow down without shame and without sin and worship him. Nobody in this universe is rightly worshipped but God himself, the angels, gladly and without sin bow down and worship Jesus. That's who we're talking about here, beloved. When you read a text like Isaiah 6 and you hear of the angels flying around the throne of God, you just have to understand those very angels are bowing down to worship Jesus because he is God. And so this chapter teaches us that as God, he never changes And his days will never, ever come to an end. He is immutable and he is eternal. Beloved, this is an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Whatever our depictions of him are, whatever our our past conceptions of Jesus are, Hebrews 1 paints a very powerful and real and accurate depiction of who Jesus actually is. He is very, very great. And he alone is worthy of our praise our adoration, our time, our affection, our attention, our souls, our lives, our all. Nobody else deserves what Jesus deserves. Because this is so, the author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to offer us a word of caution. And in doing so, he makes clear that the vision of Jesus that he's articulated in chapter 1 was meant to inform our minds, yes, And it was meant to inflame our affections for Jesus, yes. But ultimately, it was designed so that our lives would be shaped by this Jesus who we have just seen. It is not enough to be in awe of Christ. It is not enough to be impressed with Christ. It is not enough to think great thoughts of Christ and even feel deep and strong feelings for Christ. We must also, by the grace and power of Jesus, Submit ourselves to him who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is our great high priest, who is that final and eternal prophet of God, who is the final speech of God to the world. The author of Hebrews writes this sermon so that we might see the glory of Jesus and seek the heart of Jesus and then submit to the will of Jesus. He tells us throughout this letter, this sermon, in no uncertain terms, that Christ is for us. He's on our side. He laid his life down for us. He is a compassionate high priest. And he lives to pray for us. He's always praying for us. And he will help us do the things that he has called us to do. But in the light of that, the, 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 the author of Hebrews says, Beloved, we must, we simply must, Give our full and earnest attention to this Jesus who has given his everything for us. We must fix our eyes on the King of heaven and never allow our eyes to drift downward. These first few verses of chapter 2, they have the tone of a rebuke, of a, a slight admonition. But I want to be clear from the outset that the purpose of that rebuke is to woo us into the arms of the Christ who gave his everything for us. This is not a legalistic, psychological, threatening demand. This is the plea of a pastor to the people of God to come and worship Jesus as he deserved. This is a positive, even if an earnest plea. 
So you'll see there, chapter two, verse one, that the author begins by saying, therefore, in other words, on the basis of everything I've just said in chapter one, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. So the Greek words here that are translated in the ESV pay much closer attention. They're very, very strong words. And they mean something more literally like this. This, this is my translation. It's a very literal, wooden, word-for-word -word translation of the Greek words. It says, it is necessary, in the strongest sense, it is necessary for us to give the most abundant heed to the things that we have heard. It is inescapable. It is necessary. The glory and graciousness of Jesus demands this. Or if I can take a little bit more license with the translation, we could say it is a non-negotiable that we who have come to believe in Christ by the grace of Christ must learn to give our full and undivided and earnest attention to Christ because he is so great and he is so glorious and he is so gracious and he has done so much for us. So the idea here, as I said a minute ago, is that if the vision of the glory of Jesus in chapter 1 is true, and it is true, then this has implications for the way we actually live our lives. It is not enough, beloved, to read the letter of Hebrews or attend Hebrews Bible studies or come and hear sermons like this and just say, wow, Jesus is really something. Or feel feelings of affection for him. Those are good things important things, but we must not stop there. We must build a way of life by the power of Jesus that is actually centered on Jesus, where he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords over our lives. We must give our full and earnest attention to him. And the author tells us that if we fail to heed this warning, we will drift away from the Jesus who's been so faithful to us and so gracious to us. This will happen. We will, in fact, if we turn our gaze away from Christ, we will most certainly wander away from Christ. I want to focus in now on those words, drift away. In the ESV, they're translated like that, drift away, and they mean just that. It means to pass by or to pass away from something. This word in the ancient world was often used to talk about ships, so it was a nautical term. And it talked about a ship that had pulled up its anchor for whatever reason and now was floating out of its safe harbor and out into the middle of the sea. So the picture is here that if we who believe in Jesus do not give our full and, uh, and earnest attention to Jesus, we will essentially pull up anchor and we will begin drifting out to the sea of the world one step at a time, one day at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time. If we don't give Jesus our full attention, we will be infected with that disease that I like to call soul drift. This is a disease about which the author wrote to confront it and to cure it. It's a serious disease and he doesn't want it for us. And so that's why he writes. That's why he issues a warning, a rebuke if you will, but he does it in love. Most of you will remember that the first readers of Hebrews were Jewish background followers of Christ. And they had even suffered for their belief in Jesus. They had had their property plundered. Some of them had been thrown in prison. Unlike us, they really paid a real price on this earth for their belief in Jesus. Although I must say, some of us have paid a price with our families and friends and such when we came to know Christ. But I don't know of any of us that have been to prison. Maybe, maybe some of you have. 
But for these people, that was a living reality. They believed in Christ. They paid the price for that belief. Now, from what it seems in reading the letter, it seems that the the persecution has waned a bit and they're beginning to drift away from him for whom they suffered. They have lost their attention. They have lost their intensity. They have stopped looking to Jesus with everything in their hearts because they don't have this outside threat. And because their attention is not fixed on Christ, it's drifting toward other things. And because their attention is drifting toward other things, their lives are in fact drifting slowly but surely away from the anchor of their souls. This was not a small thing for them. They were Jews. So for them to drift back was to drift back under the law. It was to drift back to the system of sacrifices and rituals and regulations in which formerly they had no hope. These things were for them a path to death, and Christ had come to rescue them from death, to redeem them from death. He came with power and grace to say, no, my beloved, not in that way. Walk in this way. This is the way of death. It's broad. It seems right, but it's the way of death. This is narrow, but it's the way of life. I've come to give you the way of life. And they followed him, but now they're drifting back. They're drifting back. Why? Because it's known to them. It's comfortable to them. We are not like these people in the sense that we have almost no temptation whatsoever to return to a Jewish way of life. We have almost no temptation to go back to the rites and rituals and sacrifices and regulations and all of that stuff. However, we are very much like these people in that we are all susceptible to this disease called soul drift. Every single one of us is, and you would be wise to heed that warning. We are in danger of lowering our gaze off of Jesus, who is glorious beyond measure, and fixing our eyes on much lesser things to the the end that we end up drifting and drifting and drifting toward those things. We are in danger of looking away from Jesus and toward the world and then giving ourselves back to the world. The Lord came to rescue us from this way that was death for us and lead us in the way of life. But like these early readers, we are in danger of looking over here. You know, Jesus is here, but we're just kind of looking over our shoulders. And next thing you know, we're just inching back and we're inching back and, 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 and we can find ourselves on the path of death again. And so the writer is saying, don't do that. Christ came to save you from death. Christ came to be a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. So don't float back to the things that were causing death in your life. Don't do that. The author of Hebrews, and more so the Holy Spirit who inspired him, aims this loving rebuke right at our hearts like a skillful surgeon who knows how to get to the depths and the root of the problem. He opens us up and he says, Beloved, given who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, fix your full attention upon him lest you drift away. So he's saying, to to point out the positive thing here, there's an antidote to soul drift. And that antidote is to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. That antidote is to give our full and earnest attention to Jesus. I probably have been clear about this, but just in case I haven't, let me, let me say this as clearly as I can. The admonition in chapter 2 is not a call to legalism. 
What I mean by this is that this is not the author's way of saying to us, friends, you're not doing a good enough job here and you've got to pick it up. You've got to try harder. You've got to obey better. You've got to work harder at what you're doing. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to. He's not putting the burden for our salvation back on our shoulders. He's not doing that. I promise you, he's not doing that. As we uh, travel through Hebrews, we're going to see even harsher rebukes than this. And every time, I will show you the graciousness that's embedded inside of the rebukes. As for this one, he is not calling us to cling to Christ in our own strength. He's calling us to rest in Christ, who is our strength. He's not calling us toward our flesh. That's the problem. The reason we're drifting away from Christ is because we're depending on our flesh. He's calling us back to the Christ who has all the power to overcome our flesh. So he's not saying, in yourself, do better. Follow Christ by your strength. He's not saying that. He's saying, learn to fix your eyes on Christ and rest in him who is your strength. Persevering in Jesus, beloved, is not about what we do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done for us. He paid it all, right? All to him we owe. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because Jesus did everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. Our initial moment of salvation, the process of sanctification, and our final ascension to be with Jesus in heaven forever and ever. Jesus did it all. This admonition is saying, come, rest in what Christ has done. You're forgetting. You're forgetting. So lift your eyes up and rest in what Christ has done. Having issued this serious but indeed a gracious warning, the author goes on then in verses 2 through 4 to offer yet one more reason why we should heed the warning. Namely, he teaches us there that the message of God in Christ, that, that final speech of God in Christ, is binding and powerful, and because this is so, we will not escape its reach, we will not escape its implications. We may drift away from the anchor of our souls, beloved, but we will never escape his reach. We will never travel so far that we're beyond his righteous judgment of our souls. The author of Hebrews says later, it's appointed unto once for man to die, and then he will face the judgment. So I in my life might drift away from Christ, but I will never escape the judgment of Christ. Look there in verse 2. You'll see how he builds this idea. He says that the law of Moses, which was given by God and delivered through angels to Moses, it proved to have power in the lives of the people. And we know that because whenever they deliberately broke the law or whenever they willfully neglected the law, they had to pay a price for their actions. So when a law is enforceable, that law is valid and established and ratified. Now, this text is actually saying that this law was ratified. In the ESV, it says the words proved to be reliable. But in Greek, that's actually a technical legal phrase that means that this law was made binding, it was made valid, and it was made enforceable. Any of you who have the NIV here this morning, you'll see that they actually translate it that way, that this word was binding, and that's the right translation. 
So the idea here is that the speech of God through the law of Moses was powerful and valid, and therefore it was enforced with effect. The speech of God mattered, beloved. When the Lord says, thus says the Lord, that matters. There are implications about that. The speech of God must be obeyed, and when it is not obeyed, when it is deliberately disobeyed or willfully neglected, there is a price to be paid, and there was, in fact, in history, a price to be paid. Now, we have to just take a second, put ourselves in the skin of the original hearers here, because for them, they actually lived under the law of Moses for some time in their life, so this would have been very real to them. For us, we read the law of Moses, and it's just another book of the Bible, and we think whatever we think about it. Or some of us read through Leviticus and and honestly kind of fall asleep and don't think much about it at all. But for them, the law of Moses was actually the law of the lands. For them, the law of Moses was the law that governed their lives. And so when this author said, you know that the law of Moses was legally enforced and valid because you've all paid the price for your sin, they knew that to be true. Every single one of them could tell of experiences when they willfully disobeyed or willfully neglected the law and had to pay the price prescribed by the law. So this was very real to them. This was not theoretical or theological to them. This was life. And so then on the basis of what they knew to be true, here's the point. If that law was powerful and valid and binding, how much more powerful and valid and binding is the speech of God in Christ given that Christ is the final word of God and given that Christ is actually God. If the law that was delivered by the authority of angels had power, how much more power has that law that was delivered by one who is worshipped by angels? Beloved, the, one, the, 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 the power and the authority of the person delivering the message determines the weight of that message. And since Christ is God... His message had ultimate validity. And if that former law was binding, certainly the law of God in Christ is binding. This is why the author comes to this famous question in verse 3, a question that at times has lovingly haunted my soul. And I say lovingly because God has used this question over the years to say, Charlie, don't drift, don't drift. Here's the question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So what's he getting at here? I want to begin with this word neglect. The original word for neglect literally means not to think about something. So it means to be unconcerned about something or to pay no attention to something or to care nothing for something. So we can read it. How shall we escape if we pay no attention to such a great salvation? The same word is used in Matthew 22. Jesus told this parable of a king who gave a great feast, a banquet for his son. And he invited lots of his friends to come to this banquet. But the problem is, the king sends his servants out to get those invitees and to actually bring them to the banquet. The time has come. The feast is on. The joy is waiting. The servants go to get these people and the people say one by one by one, no thank you, we're not coming. And here's where this exact word is used in Matthew 22. It said because they paid no attention to the king. 
They neglected the king and the message of the king. And instead, they gave themselves to their farms, to their businesses, to their fleshly desires. And it even says in the parable that they persecuted people and put to death some of the servants of the king. So the point there is that they're so caught up in wanting what they want that they absolutely disregard and disrespect and demean this king who has been so gracious to them. They neglected this great invitation. They did not pay attention to this great invitation. And how did the king feel about this? Well, it says that the king became exceedingly angry and he gathered his forces and he sent his forces against these people and he destroyed these people and he burnt their possessions to the ground. In other words, they did not escape the wrath of the king. They neglected, they disrespected him who had given so much for them, and in return they received wrath. Let's take this back to Hebrews 2 now and think about it. I think what the author is saying is, given the glorious reality of who Jesus is and what the Father has spoken through him, how shall any of us escape the wrath of God if we refuse to pay attention to him who is so glorious and so great, and so gracious. Beloved, this is, this is actually not a parable for us, no. We, each of us who believe in Christ, we have been invited to the great feast of the King of Kings. That is true. I'll tell you what my invitation is. My invitation is the seal of the Holy Spirit upon my life. The Holy Spirit living in me is a deposit and a ticket that says, let this guy into the banquet feast. And everybody who believes in Jesus has been invited to the feast. So this is no longer a parable now. This is reality. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has invited us to that great and final and eternal feast where he will marry his bride and where we will celebrate and worship him forever and ever and ever. How shall we escape if we snub this king in favor of the pleasures of the world or the desires of our flesh? How will we ever escape the reach of the powerful word of God in Christ? We will not. We will not. We may drift away from Christ, but we will never escape the reach of Christ. And how can we know that? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us a few more things about how the message of God in Christ was delivered. And these become very important things for understanding the binding power of the message of God in Christ. You need to hear this and understand. You are under the law of Christ, and so is everybody else on the face of planet Earth. Just in the same way that we are bound by the laws of the United States of America, we are bound by a much greater and eternal law, and it is the law of Christ. It is the speech of God in Christ, and nobody on this earth will escape the speech of God in Christ. How do we know? First of all, look in the middle of verse 3. There we see that this most powerful and binding word was declared by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is really important. So when the law of Moses came, what happened? God sent angels. Angels spoke with Moses. Moses spoke with the people. All right? Angels are powerful. Moses was a great man of God, but neither of them are God. From God to angels to Moses to the people. When the message of God in Christ came, who delivered that message? It was Jesus Christ himself. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the eternal God, the unchanging God. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one who sits on the throne of God forever and ever and ever. And so, as I said to you, the authority of the one speaking the message determines the authority of the message itself. And since Jesus Christ came and delivered this message with his own mouth, through his own life, more so since Jesus Christ was the message that he delivered, this message is infinitely and ultimately powerful. No message, no law will ever outdo the message or the law of God in Christ. The authority of Christ has, has established the permanency, the validity, and the binding power of the word of God through Christ. Second thing, this is also in verse 3. The next thing that happens is, I, I interpret this to mean the 12 apostles, that those who heard then went on to preach this gospel. I think that means the apostles. And so there, we see that the 12 apostles of Christ took up this message and, and, command, and proclaimed it by the command and the authority of Christ. Go into the world and make disciples on the basis of my authority, and behold, I will be with you to the very end of the age. As they did that, God caused the message of the gospel to become ratified, binding, and enforceable in all of the earth. Now, where do I get that idea? It's going to take a minute for me to explain. You see this word, it's translated in the ESV, attested, that these ones attested to this message. Several others of your translations will say that this message was confirmed by those who heard. Well, that word confirmed or attested is the exact same word that we find up in verse 2 that is translated reliable. So let me just slow down here for a second. I put this up on the PowerPoint so that you could process what I'm saying. This is an important point. This has effect for our daily lives. It's proof that we are under the legal binding power of the law of God in Christ. The author says in verse 2 that the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. And then in verse 3 he says that this message was attested by the apostles. The words reliable and attested are the exact same word in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, that word means to be valid or binding or enforceable. It's a legal term, beloved. So God established the legal validity of the law of Moses, and now through the preaching of Christ and the preaching of the apostles, he has established the legal validity of the law of God in Christ, in his kingdom, and that law will never be reversed. That law will never be superseded. And so the idea here is that even as the speech of God through the prophets was ratified and then came with inescapable effects, and the people listening to this sermon at first, they knew it, they had been under those inescapable effects. Now the author is saying, listen, you have to understand that the speech of God and his son is also valid and binding, and it comes with inescapable effects. And... Since the Son is so much more glorious than the angels, so much more eternal than the angels, how shall we ever escape Him if we neglect Him, if we pay no attention to Him, if we give ourselves to the things of the world and the pleasures of the world and in this way demean and, def and defame God? Like the guests that were invited to the banquet of that king, beloved, we will not escape if we fail to pay attention to the king of kings. This is a stern, it's a harsh, or at least a hard to hear warning, but it's given in love because it's true. We're being told the truth. So third, 
Although these two things were enough to establish the power of the word of God in Christ forever, look in verse 4 there, and you'll see that God himself even got into the game, so to speak. God himself testified to the truthfulness of the message of God in Christ by signs, wonders, various miracles, and spiritual gifts distributed according to his will. Next week I plan to give a whole entire message on the issue of spiritual gifts and miraculous gifts and and their place in the kingdom of God and in the church. But for this week, I just want to say this and be as clear as I can. And you can read that for yourself and check to see if I'm right about this. The purpose of miraculous and spiritual gifts is to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus. When God grants miracles, and I've seen him do it, I won't take the time to tell you stories, but beloved, I've seen him heal people. When God grants spiritual gifts, and I've seen him do it, many of us have seen him do it. He's not trying to draw attention to the gifts, he's trying to draw attention to Jesus. God is saying, this message about Jesus is so real that I'm going to demonstrate my presence among you by doing things that could never be done unless I myself did them. Only God heals diseases. Only God raises the dead. Only God causes people to speak in other languages that they don't know at all. Only God gives insight into, into the spiritual world so that we have people who can actually discern the spirits of the spiritual world. Only God gives wisdom for spiritual battles that can only be won by His power and His wisdom and His glory. And when He does that, The reason he's doing that is to draw attention to Jesus. He is testifying to the validity and the binding power of Jesus. I want to tell you, there are some beings in this universe that know what I'm saying is true and who I have in mind are the demons. You know how we know that they knew they were under the binding authority of Christ? It's because every time they came face to face with Christ, what did they do? They trembled, right? You remember the story of Jesus casting out the one demon? He he demands from them, what's your name? And the the demon says for for a whole bunch of them, "Our, our name is Legion because we are many. Then they begin to tremble and they beg of him, please don't punish us before the time. Don't punish us before the time. This is a window, beloved, into the power of Christ. The, the demons that are in this world understand the authority of Christ. And I'll tell you, some other time I'll tell you maybe the details of this part of my conversion. But one of the reasons I came to Jesus is because when I was in the drug world, I was around a lot of people who were into Satanism and all this stuff. And the whole issue of evil was very real to me. I, I never had to be persuaded about evil, about demons, about the power of darkness. I never had to be persuaded about that because I saw it with my own eyes before I came to know Christ. On October 26, 1986, when Christ walked into the room of my soul, the darkness fled like a bunch of rats or like a bunch of, uh, of, of roaches when somebody turns the light on. They were afraid of him. They fled from my life, and Christ rescued me. Why? Because they understand they are under the binding authority of Christ, and nothing can be done about this. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How shall we escape if we neglect one so, so, so great as him? That's the, the heart, the message of the warning. Now, I do want to take a minute and just say, if we're not careful, 
we're going to come away from this warning with, with this sense of a, of a threat as though God is just trying to coerce us into doing what he wants us to do. Like he's saying, listen, you better get in line and do what I want you to do. And if you don't, man, I'm going to slam you. I'm going to hurt you. I just want to tell you, that's not the heart of our Father. He doesn't have to coerce us. He has all power. The message of God in Christ is called the gospel. What does that mean? It it literally means the good news. Why is the message about Christ good news? Because he's come to break the power of canceled sin. He's come to make us one with him in his perfect righteousness so that we stand before God like we had never sinned. He's come to take away our sins for us and we actually die with him when we believe in him so that our sins are taken away. He's come to make us one with him in his resurrection so that we overcome that final and most powerful enemy, death. He's come to make us one with him in his ascension so that we sinners saved by the grace of God in Christ will actually be seated on the throne of Christ. I'm not making that up. It says it in Ephesians 2, 4 and following. Read it for yourselves. This is great news that God has come to rescue us from our sin and restore us to full fellowship with God in Christ. It is very, very, very good news. And because it's such good news, he has to warn us when we're walking away from that news. What kind of father would he be in letting us return to the things that caused us death? Any good parents would intervene and stop their child from driving a car off a cliff if they could do it. God is a much better parent than any of us, infinitely better, and why would he do any less? He rebukes us, beloved, because he loves us. He warns us because he cares for us. He tells us the truth because he wants us to walk in truth, and so he's telling us today, every one of us, beloved, soul drift is a deadly, deadly danger to your soul. Don't let yourself give into it. Fix your eyes upon the one who did everything for you. Give your full and earnest attention to Christ, and he will be a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. This is maybe a little bit of a hard-to-hear rebuke, but it's a loving rebuke, beloved. God is for us and not against us. I want to tell you a story of how that's so. 260 years ago this year, exactly, in 1752, A young 22-year-old man named Robert Robinson wrote one of my favorite hymns. It's called, Come Thou Founts of Every Blessing. Robinson had been converted under the preaching ministry of George Whittefield, the famous Reformed evangelist. And in time, Robinson actually became a pastor and wrote some hymns and did various other things. But sadly, as time went on, he neglected this great salvation. He allowed his eyes to slip off of Christ, and he slowly drifted away from Christ until he was pretty darn far away from him. And how did that happen, you ask? Well, I actually don't know the details of the story of of what exactly caused him to drift and exactly how far he drifted, but I know the answer to the question, how did this happen? It happened one small step at a time. That's how it happened. One day at a time. One small step at a time. Not running away from Jesus, drifting, drifting, drifting away from Jesus. But God had other plans. Robinson, in the quest for peace and joy, wholeness, fulfillment, the things for which we all long, he began to travel around the world. When I was in the world, we called this doing a geographical. You know, if life isn't working in Minnesota, I'll just move to Arizona, see how things go there. The problem is everywhere you go, there you are. 
And so he couldn't find peace, and he traveled, and he traveled, and he traveled, and he traveled. On one of his journeys, he runs into this young lady, and I don't know why she did this, but she came up and said, Sir, what do you think about this hymn that I've really been enjoying lately? Maybe she was trying to share Christ with him. I, I don't know what her motives were. But, but she's saying, sir, please, what do you think of this hymn? And he's really reluctant to engage in the conversation. And he's doing everything he can to get out of it because he looks down and realize, realizes that's the, that's the hymn he had written. The hymn that had touched her heart was come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. The mount of thy redeeming love in Christ. Robert Robinson could not escape the grace of God who warned him away from the danger of soul drift. And he could not escape the grace of the God who pursued him day by day by day when he did in fact drift. And so finally in that moment, Robinson just broke down, laid down his arms, told the young lady who he was, what he had done, and where he was in his life. She, gentle I'm sure, and filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Mr. Robinson, the streams of mercy about which you wrote, they're still flowing. They're still flowing. And Christ wants them to flow over your life. Christ wants to bring you home. And oh, this melted Robert Robinson's heart right there on the spot, just melted him into a puddle. And he gave up the fight, he gave up the drift, and he fixed his eyes on Christ. He came back to Christ. He was restored to full fellowship with Christ and with the people of Christ and lived the rest of his days in worship and service. Why did that happen? God loved Robert Robinson with an everlasting love, and so he warned him, don't drift. God loved him with an everlasting love, and so when he did in fact drift, God pursued him and pursued him and pursued him to the ends of the earth. He pursued him until he had all of his heart, till he won all of his heart. God loved Robert Robinson with an everlasting love, and so he sends a young woman to confront him with the very words that he wrote about the love of God that will never fail and will never come to an end. Oh, beloved, our hope against this disease of soul drift is actually the faithfulness of God that pursues us. It's not about what we do for him. It's about what he has already done for us. And so in that spirit, the author of Hebrews is telling us, beloved, fix your eyes upon Christ. Look at chapter 1 and realize that that glorious vision is not a theoretical vision. It is a realistic picture of the glory of who Jesus is. And so give your full attention to him. Give your earnest attention to him. Just surrender to him. You don't have to do anything other than just look and surrender and believe his power will work in you to redeem you all the way to the core of your soul. Fix your eyes on Christ, and in this way, you will not drift away from Christ. Beloved, As I prayed, especially over the last day, yesterday in particular, I just had the sense that some of you are are wandering. You may be visiting here for the first time today. You may have been here for a while. You may be hiding this well. You may not be hiding it at all. But one way or the other, you're you're, you're wandering. You're drifting. And I just want to tell you that your, your God in Christ has brought you here today to woo you back to himself. 
He's got his arms stretched out. He's got mercy in his heart. He's got a smile upon his face, and he's saying, son or daughter, come back home. Come back home. I'm eager to receive you. I'm eager to restore you. I'm eager to let these streams of mercy flow upon you. I will do that for you. So, beloved, I want to encourage you. Let go of the lesser pleasures of life today and let the Lord have his way in you. Let him woo you back to himself. Others of us, we may not have quite drifted away yet, but I I would guess even in a room this size that there are some of us that are playing with this. We're dipping our toe in pools that we know could spell death for us. And I just want to encourage you, just take your foot out of the pool. Just, Just stop. Just turn away from the world. Turn back towards your Father. He's got good intentions for you. He's got blessings beyond compare for you. And he's here today to woo you back into his presence. So let him do it. Let your Father have his design in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the God that you are. I thank you for the softness and tenderness of your heart. I thank you for your commitment to us. I thank you for your steadfast love toward us. And I pray today that you would persuade every single one of us to give our full and earnest attention to you, Lord, that we would not drift away. We love you for telling us the truth. We love you for helping us with obedience. And we love you for pouring out your blessing upon our lives. We give ourselves to you now, Father, in our hearts and with our mouths in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.